0: Hello and welcome, friends, family, and enemies alike, to episode 33 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. This week, we continue through The Woman in White with Chapter 8. And since there's a lot to be read, all that is left to be said is, let us begin. When I entered the room... I found Miss Halcombe and an elderly lady seated at the luncheon table. The elderly lady, when I was presented to her, proved to be Miss Fairley's former governess, Mrs. Vesey, who had been briefly described to me by my lively companion at the breakfast table as possessed of all the cardinal virtues and counting for nothing. I can do little more than offer my humble testimony to the truthfulness of Miss Halcombe's sketch of the old lady's character, Mrs. Vesey looked to the personification of human composure and female amiability. A calm enjoyment of a calm existence beamed in drowsy smiles on her plump, placid face. Some of us rush through life, and some of us saunter through life. Mrs. Vesey sat through life. Sat in the house, early and late. Sat in the garden. Sat in unexpected window seats and passages sat on a campstool when her friends tried to take her out walking, sat before she looked at anything, before she talked of anything, before she answered yes or no to the commonest question, always with the same serene smile on her lips, the same vacantly attentive turn of the head, the same snugly comfortable position of her hands and arms under every possible change of domestic circumstances. A mild, a compliant, an utterably tranquil and harmless old lady who never by any chance suggested the idea that she had been actually alive since the hour of her birth. Nature has so much to do in this world and is engaged in generating such a vast variety of coexistent productions that she must surely be now and then too flurried and confused to distinguish between the different processes that she is carrying on at the same time. Starting from this point of view, it will always remain my private persuasion that nature was absorbed in making cabbages when Mrs. Vesey was born, and that the good lady suffered the consequences of a vegetable preoccupation in the mind of the mother of us all. Now, Mrs. Vesey, said Miss Halcombe, looking brighter, sharper, and readier than ever by contrast with the undemonstrative old lady at her side, what will you have? A cutlet? Mrs. Vesey crossed her dimpled hands on the edge of the table, smiled placidly, and said, Yes, dear? What is that opposite Mr. Hartwright? Boiled chicken, is it not? I thought you liked boiled chicken better than cutlet, Mrs. Vesey. Mrs. Vesey took her dimpled hands off the edge of the table and crossed them on her lap instead, nodded contemplatively at the boiled chicken, and said, "'Yes, dear.' "'Well, but which will you have today? "'Shall Mr. Hartwright give you some chicken, "'or shall I give you some cutlet?' "'Mrs. Vesey put one of her dimpled hands "'back again on the edge of the table, "'hesitated drowsily, and said, "'Which you please, dear?' "'Mercy on me. "'It's a question for your taste, my good lady, "'not for mine. "'Suppose you have a little of both, "'and suppose you begin with the chicken.' because Mr. Hartwright looks devoured by anxiety to carve for you. Mrs. Vesey put the other dimpled hand back on the edge of the table, brightened dimly one moment, went out again the next, bowed obediently and said, If you please, sir. Surely a mild, compliant, and utterably tranquil and harmless old lady. But enough, perhaps, for the present of Mrs. Vesey. All this time, There were no signs of Miss Fairley. We finished our luncheon, and still, she never appeared. Miss Halcombe, whose quick eye nothing escaped, noticed the looks that I cast from time to time in the direction of the door. "'I understand, Mr. Hartwright,' she said. "'You are wondering what has become of your other pupil. "'She has been downstairs and has got over her headache, "'but has not sufficiently recovered her appetite to join us at lunch.' If you will put yourself under my charge, I think I can undertake to find her somewhere in the garden. She took up a parasol, lying on a chair near her, and led the way out by a long window at the bottom of the room, which opened on to the lawn. It is almost unnecessary to say that we left Mrs. Vesey still seated at the table, with her dimpled hands still crossed on the edge of it, "'apparently settled in that position for the rest of the afternoon. "'As we crossed the lawn, Miss Halcombe looked at me significantly and shook her head. "'That mysterious adventure of yours,' she said, "'still remains involved in its own appropriate midnight darkness. "'I've been all morning looking over my mother's letters, and I've made no discoveries yet. "'However, don't despair, Mr. Hartwright. "'This is a matter of curiosity.' and you've got a woman for your ally. Under such conditions, success is certain sooner or later. The letters are not exhausted. I have three packets still left, and you may confidently rely on my spending the whole evening over them. Here, then, was one of my anticipations of the morning still unfulfilled, I began to wonder next whether my introduction to Miss Fairley would disappoint the expectations that I'd been forming for her since breakfast time. "'And how did you get on with Mr. Fairley?' inquired Miss Halcombe, as we left the lawn and turned into a shrubbery. "'Was he particularly nervous this morning? Never mind considering about your answer, Mr. Hartwright. The mere fact of your being obliged to consider is enough for me.' I see in your face that he was particularly nervous, and as I am amiably unwilling to throw you into the same condition, I ask no more. We turned off a winding path while she was still speaking and approached a pretty summer house built of wood in the form of a miniature Swiss chalet. The one room of the summer house, as we ascended the steps of the door, was occupied by a young lady. She was standing near a rustic table, looking out at the inland view of the moor and hill, presented by a gap in the trees, and absently turned over the leaves of a little sketchbook that lay at her side. This was Miss Fairley. How can I describe her? How can I separate her from my own sensations and from all that has happened in the later time? How can I see her again as she looked when my eyes first rested on? as she should look now to the eyes that are about to see her in these pages. The watercolor drawing that I had made of Laura Fairley, at an after period, in the place and attitude in which I first saw her, lies on my desk while I write. I look at it, and there are dawns upon me brightly, from the dark greenish-brown background of the summer house, a light, youthful figure, clothed in a simple muslin dress, the pattern of it formed by broad alternate stripes of delicate blue and white. A scarf of the same material sits crisply and closely round her shoulders, and a little straw hat of the natural color, plainly and sparingly trimmed with ribbon to match the gown, covers her head and throws its soft pearly shadow over the upper part of her face. Her hair is of so faint and pale brown not flaxen, and yet almost as light, not golden, and yet almost as glossy, that it nearly melts, here and there, into the shadow of the hat. It is plainly parted and drawn back over her ears, and the line of it ripples naturally as it crosses her forehead. The eyebrows are rather darker than her hair, and the eyes are that of soft, limpid, turquoise blue, So often sung by the poets, so seldom seen in real life. Lovely eyes in color, lovely eyes in form, large and tender and quietly thoughtful, but beautiful above all things in the clear truthfulness of look that dwells in her inmost depths and shines through all their changes of expression with the light of a pure and better world. The charm, most gently and yet most distinctly expressed, which they shed over the whole face, so covers and transforms its little natural human blemishes elsewhere that it is difficult to estimate the relative merits and defects of the other features. It is hard to see that the lower part of the face is too delicately refined away towards the chin to be in full and fair proportion with the upper part, that the nose, in escaping the aquiline bend, always hard and cruel in a woman, no matter how abstractly perfect it may be, has erred a little in the other extreme and has missed the ideal straightness of line, and that the sweet, sensitive lips are subject to a slight nervous contraction when she smiles, which draws them upward a little at one corner, toward the cheek. It might be possible to note these blemishes in another woman's face, but it is not easy to dwell on them in hers. So subtly are they connected with all that is individual and characteristic in her expression. And so closely does the expression depend for its full play and life in every other feature on the moving impulse of her eyes. Does my portrait of her, my fond, patient labor of long and happy days, show me these things? Ah. How few of them are in dim mechanical drawing, and how many in the mind with which I regard it. A fair, delicate girl, in a pretty light dress, trifling with the leaves of a sketchbook, where she looks up from it with truthful, innocent blue eyes. That is all the drawing can say, or perhaps that even the deeper reach of thought and pen can say in their language either. The woman who first gives life, light, and form to our shadowy conceptions of beauty, fills a void in our spiritual nature that has remained unknown to us till she appeared. Sympathies that lie too deep for words, too deep almost for thoughts, are touched at such times by other charms than those which the senses feel and which the resources of expression can realize. The mystery which underlies the beauty of women— is never raised above the reach of all expression until it is claimed kindred with the deeper mystery in our own souls. Then, and then only, has it passed beyond the narrow region on which light falls, in this world, from the pencil and pen. Think of her as you thought of the first woman who who quickened the pulses within you that the rest of her sex had no art to stir, Let the kind candid blue eyes meet yours as they met mine with the one matchless look which we both remember so well let her voice speak the music that you once loved best attuned as sweetly to your ears to mine let her footstep as she comes and goes in these pages be like that other footstep to whose airy fall your own heart once beat time take her as the visionary nursling of your own fancy, and she will grow upon you all the more clearly as the living woman who dwells in mine. Among the sensations that crowded on me when my eyes first looked upon her, familiar sensations which we all know, which spring to life in most of our hearts, die again in so many, and renew their bright existence in so few there was one that troubled and perplexed me. One that seemed strangely inconsistent and unaccountably out of place in Miss Fairley's presence. Mingling with the vivid impression produced by the charm of her fair face and head, her sweet expression and her winning simplicity of manner was another impression, which, in a shadowy way, suggested to me the idea of something wanting. At one time, it, seemed like something wanting in her, at another, like something wanting in myself, which hindered me from understanding her as I ought. The impression was always strongest in the most contradictory manner when she looked at me, or in other words, when I was most conscious of the harmony and charm of her face, and yet, at the same time, most troubled by the sense of an incompleteness, which was impossible to discover something wanting, something wanting, and where it was and what it was, I could not say. The effect of this curious caprice of fancy, as I thought it then, was not of a nature to set me at ease during a first interview with Miss Fairley. The few kind words of welcome which she spoke found me hardly self-possessed enough to thank her in the customary phrases of reply. Observing my own hesitation, and no doubt attributing it naturally enough to some momentary shyness on my part, Miss Halcombe took the business of talking, as easily and readily as usual, into her own hands. "'Look there, Mr. Hartwright,' she said, pointing to the sketch book on the table and to the little delicate wandering hand that was still trifling with it. "'Surely you will acknowledge that your model pupil is found at last. "'The moment she hears that you are in the house,' She seizes her inestimable sketchbook, looks universal nature straight in the face, and longs to begin. Miss Fairley laughed with already good humor, which broke out as brightly as if it had been part of the sunshine above us, over her lovely face. I must not take credit to myself where no credit is due, she said, her clear, truthful blue eyes looking alternately at Miss Halcombe and at me fond as i am of drawing i'm so conscious of my own ignorance that i am more afraid than anxious to begin now i know you are here mr hartright i find myself looking over my sketches as i used to look over my lessons when i was a little girl and when i was sadly afraid that i should turn out not fit to be heard she made the confession very prettily and simply and with quaint childish earnestness drew the sketchbook away close to her own side of the table. Miss Halcombe cut the knot of the little embarrassment forthwith in her resolute, downright way. Good, bad, or indifferent, she said, the pupil's sketches must pass through the fiery ordeal of the Master's Judgment, and there's an end of it. Suppose we take them with us in the carriage, Laura, and let Mr. Hartwright see them for the first time under circumstances of perpetual jolting and interruption. If we can only confuse him all through the drive between nature as it is when he looks up at the view and nature as it is not when he looks down again at our sketchbooks, we shall drive him into the last desperate refuge of paying us compliments and shall slip through his professional fingers with our pet feathers of vanity all unruffled. I hope Mr. Hartwright will pay me no compliments," said Miss Fairley as we left the summer house. "May I venture to inquire why you express that hope?" I asked. "Because, I shall believe all that you say to me," she answered simply. In those few words, she unconsciously gave me the key to her whole character, to that generous trust in others which, in her nature, grew innocently out of the sense of her own truth. I only knew it intuitively then. I know it by experience now. We merely waited to rouse good Miss Vesey from the place which she still occupied at the deserted luncheon table before we entered the open carriage for our promised drive. The old lady and Miss Halcombe occupied the back seat, and Miss Fairley and I sat together in front, with the sketchbook open between us, fairly exhibited at last to my professional eyes. All serious criticism on the drawings, even if I had been disposed to volunteer it, was rendered impossible by Miss Halcombe's lively resolution to see nothing but the ridiculous side of the fine arts as practiced by herself, her sister, and ladies in general. I can remember the conversation that passed far more easily than the sketches that I mechanically looked over. That part of the talk especially in which Miss Fairley took any share, is still as vividly impressed on my memory as if I had heard it only a few hours ago. Yes, let me acknowledge that on this first day I let the charm of her presence lure me from the recollection of myself in my position. The most trifling of questions that she put to me, on the subject of using her pencil and mixing her colors, The slightest alterations of expression in the lovely eyes that looked into mine with such an earnest desire to learn all that I could teach and to discover all that I could show attracted more of my attention than the finest view we passed through, or the grandest changes of light and shade as they flowed into each other over the waving moorland and the level beach. At any time and under any circumstance of human interest, Is it not strange to see how little real hold the objects of the natural world, amid which we live, gain on our hearts and minds? We go to nature for comfort in trouble, and sympathy and joy only in books. Admiration of those beauties of the inanimate world, which modern poetry so largely and so eloquently describes, is not, even in the best of us, one of the original instincts of our nature. As children... We none of us possess it. No uninstructed man or woman possesses it. Those whose lives are most exclusively passed amid the ever-changing wonders of sea and land are also those who are most universally insensible to every aspect of nature, not directly associated with the human interest of their calling. A capacity of appreciating the beauties of the earth we live on is, in truth, one of the civilized accomplishments which we all learn as an art. And more, that very capacity is rarely practiced by any of us, except when our minds are most indolent and most unoccupied. How much share have the attractions of nature ever had in the pleasurable or painful interests and emotions of ourselves or our friends? What space do they ever occupy in the thousand little narratives of personal experience which pass every day by word of mouth from one of us to the other? All that our minds can compass, all that our hearts can learn, can be accomplished with equal certainty, equal profit, and equal satisfaction to ourselves, in the poorest as in the richest prospect that the face of the earth can show. There is surely a reason for this want of inborn sympathy between the creature and the creation round it. A reason which may perhaps be found in the widely differing destinies of man and his earthly sphere. The grandest mountain prospect that the eye can range over is appointed to annihilation. The smallest human interest that the pure heart can feel is appointed to immortality. We had been out nearly three hours, when the carriage again passed through the gates of Limeridge House. On a way back, I'd let the ladies settle for themselves the first point of view which they were to sketch, under my instructions, on the afternoon of the next day. When they withdrew to dress for dinner, and when I was alone again in my little sitting room, my spirits seemed to leave me on a sudden. I felt ill at ease and dissatisfied with myself. I hardly knew why. Perhaps I was now conscious, for the first time, of having enjoyed our drive too much in the character of a guest, and too little in the character of a drawing-master. Perhaps that strange sense of something wanting, either in Miss Fairlie or in myself, which had perplexed me when I was first introduced to her, haunted me still. Anyhow, it was a relief to my spirits when the dinner hour called me out of my solitude, "'and took me back to the society of the ladies of the house. "'I was struck on entering the drawing-room "'by the curious contrast, rather in material than in colour, "'of the dresses which they now wore. "'While Mrs. Vesey and Miss Halcombe were richly clad, "'each in the manner most becoming to her age, "'the first in silver-gray, "'and the second in that delicate primrose-yellow colour "'which matches so well with a dark complexion in black hair, Miss Fairley was unpretendingly and almost poorly dressed in plain white muslin. It was spotlessly pure. It was beautifully put on. But still, it was the sort of dress which the wife or daughter of a poor man might have worn, and it made her, so far as externals went, look less affluent in circumstances than her own governess at a later period, when I had learnt to know more of Miss Fairley's character, I discovered that this curious contrast on the wrong side was due to her natural delicacy of feeling and natural intensity of aversion to the slightest personal display of her own wealth. Neither Mrs. Vesey nor Miss Halcombe could ever induce her to let the advantage in dress desert the two ladies who were poor to lean to the side of the one lady who was rich. When the dinner was over, we returned together to the drawing-room. Although Mr. Fairley, emulating the magnificent condescension of the monarch who had picked up Titian's brush for him, had instructed his butler to consult my wishes in relation to the wine that I might prefer after dinner, I was resolute enough to resist the temptation of sitting in solitary grandeur among bottles of my own choosing, and sensible enough to ask the lady's permission to leave the table with them habitually, on the civilized foreign plan during the period of my residence at the Limeridge House. The drawing-room, to which we had now withdrawn for the rest of the evening, was on the ground floor and was of the same shape and size as the breakfast room. Large glass doors at the lower end opened onto a terrace, beautifully ornamented along its whole length with a profusion of flowers. The soft, hazy twilight was just shading leaf and blossom alike— into harmony with its own sober hues as we entered the room, and the sweet evening scents of the flowers met us with fragrant welcome through the open glass doors. Good Mrs. Fesey, always the first of the party to sit down, took possession of an armchair in a corner and dozed off comfortably to sleep. At my request, Miss Fairley placed herself at the piano. As I followed her to a seat near the instrument, I saw Miss Halcombe retire into a recess of one of the side windows to proceed with the search through her mother's letters by the last quiet rays of the evening light. How vividly that peaceful home picture of the drawing room comes back to me while I write. From the place where I sat, I could see Miss Halcombe's graceful figure, half of it in soft light, half in mysterious shadow, bending intently over the letters in her lap. While nearer to me, The fair profile of the player at the piano was just delicately defined against the faintly deepening background of the inner wall of the room. Outside on the terrace, the clustering flowers and long grasses and creepers waved so gently in the light evening air that the sound of their rustling never reached us. The sky was without a cloud, and the dawning mystery of moonlight began to tremble already, in the region of the eastern heaven the sense of peace and seclusion soothed all thought and feeling into a rapt, unearthly repose and the balmy quiet that deepened ever with the deepening light seemed to hover over us with a gentler influence still when there stole upon it from the piano that heavenly tenderness of the music of mozart it was an evening of sights and sounds never to forget We all sat silent in the places we had chosen. Mrs. Vesey still sleeping, Miss Fairley still playing, Miss Halcombe still reading, till the light failed us. By this time, the moon had stolen round to the terrace, and soft, mysterious rays of light were slanting already across the lower end of the room. The change from the twilight obscurity was so beautiful that we banished the lamps by common consent, when the servant brought them in and kept the large room unlighted except by the glimmer of the two candles at the piano. For half an hour more, the music still went on. After that, the beauty of the moonlight view on the terrace tempted Miss Fairley out to look at it, and I followed her. When the candles at the piano had been lighted, Miss Halcombe had changed her place so as to continue her examination of the letters by their assistance. We left her, "'on a low chair at one side of the instrument, "'so absorbed over her reading "'that she did not seem to notice when we moved. "'We had been out on the terrace together, "'just in front of the glass doors, "'hardly so long as five minutes, I should think, "'and Miss Fairley was, by my advice, "'just tying her white handkerchief over her head "'as a precaution against the night air, "'when I heard Miss Halcombe's voice, "'low, eager, and altered from its naturally lively tone.' "'pronounce my name.' "'Mr. Hartwright,' she said, "'will you come here for a minute? "'I want to speak to you.' "'I entered the room again immediately. "'The piano stood about halfway down along the inner wall. "'On the side of the instrument farthest from the terrace, "'Miss Halcombe was sitting with the letters scattered on her lap "'and with one in her hand selected from them "'and held closely to the candle. "'On the side nearest to the terrace, "'there stood a low ottoman.' on which I took my place. In this position, I was not far from the glass doors, and I could see Miss Fairley plainly as she passed and repassed the opening onto the terrace, walking slowly from end to end of it in the full radiance of the moon. I want you to listen while I read the concluding passages in this letter, said Miss Halcombe. Tell me if you think they throw any light upon your strange adventure on the road to London. The letter is addressed by my mother to her second husband, Mr. Fairley, and the date refers to a period of between eleven and twelve years since. At that time, Mr. and Mrs. Fairley and my half-sister Laura had been living for years in this house, and I was away from them completing my education at a school in Paris. She looked and spoke earnestly, and, as I thought, a little uneasily as well. At the moment when she raised the letter to the candle before beginning to read it, Miss Fairley passed us on the terrace, looked in for a moment, and seeing that we were engaged, slowly walked on. Miss Halcombe began to read as follows: You will be tired, my dear Philip, of hearing perpetually about my schools and my scholars. Lay the blame, pray, on the dull uniformity of life at Limeridge, and not on me. Besides, this time I have something really interesting to tell you about a new scholar. You know old Mrs. Kemp at the village shop? Well, after years of ailing, the doctor has at last given her up, and she's dying slowly, day by day. Her only living relation, a sister, arrived last week to take care of her. The sister comes all the way from Hampshire. Her name is Mrs. Catherick. Four days ago, Mrs. Catherick came here to see me and brought her only child with her, a sweet little girl about a year older than our darling Laura. As the last sentence fell from the reader's lips, Miss Fairley passed us on the terrace once more. She was softly singing to herself one of the melodies which she had been playing earlier in the evening. Miss Halcombe waited till she had passed out of sight again, and then went on with the letter. Mrs. Catherick is a decent, well-behaved, respectable woman, middle-aged, and with the remains of having been moderately only moderately. Nice looking. There is something in her manner and her appearance, however, which I can't make out. She is reserved about herself to the point of downright secrecy, and there is a look in her face. I can't describe it, which suggests to me that she has something on her mind. She is altogether what you would call a walking mystery. Her errand at Limeridge House, however, was simple enough. When she left Hampshire to nurse her sister, Mrs. Kemp, through her last illness, she had been obliged to bring her daughter with her, through having no one at home to take care of the little girl. Mrs. Kemp may die in a week's time, or may linger on for months, and Mrs. Catherick's object was to ask me to let her daughter, Anne, have the benefit of attending my school, subject to the condition of her being removed from it, to go home again with her mother after Mrs. Kemp's death. I consented at once, And when Laura and I went out for our walk, we took the little girl, who was just eleven years old, to the school that very day. Once more, Miss Fairley's figure, bright and soft in its snowy muslin dress, her face prettily framed by the white folds of the handkerchief which she had tied under her chin, passed by us in the moonlight. Once more, Miss Halcombe waited till she was out of sight, and then went on. I've taken a violent fancy, Philip, to my new scholar, for a reason which I mean to keep till the last for the sake of surprising you. Her mother, having told me as little about the child as she told me of herself, I was left to discover, which I did on the first day when we tried her at lessons, that the poor little thing's intellect is not developed as it ought to be at her age. Seeing this, I had her up to the house the next day, and privately arranged with the doctor to come and watch her and question her, and to tell me what he thought, his opinion is that she will grow out of it. But he says her careful bringing up at school is a matter of great importance just now, because her unusual slowness in acquiring ideas implies an unusual tenacity in keeping them, when they were once received into her mind. Now, my love, you must not imagine, in your off-hand way, that I have been attaching myself to an idiot. This poor little Anne Catherick is a sweet, affectionate, grateful girl, and says the quaintest, prettiest things, as you shall judge by an instance, in the most oddly sudden, surprised, half-frightened way. Although she is dressed very neatly, her clothes show a sad waste of tasting color and pattern. So I arranged yesterday that some of our darling Laura's old white frocks and white hats should be altered for Anne Catherick, explaining to her that the little girl's of her complexion looked neater and better, all in white than in anything else. She hesitated and seemed puzzled for a minute, then flushed up and appeared to understand. Her little hand clasped mine suddenly. She kissed it, Philip and said, Oh, so earnestly, I will always wear white as long as I live. It will help me to remember you, ma'am, and to think that I am pleasing you still when I go away and see you no more. This is only one specimen of the quaint things she says so prettily. Poor little soul. She shall have a stock of white frocks made with good deep tucks to let out for her as she grows. Miss Halcombe paused and looked at me across the piano. Did the forlorn woman whom you met in the high road seem young? She asked. Young enough to be two or three and twenty? Yes, Miss Halcombe. As young as that. And she was strangely dressed from head to foot, nor white. All in white. While the answer was passing my lips, Miss Fairley glided into view on the terrace for the third time. Instead of proceeding on her walk, she stopped, with her back turned toward us, and leaning on the balustrade of the terrace, looking down into the garden beyond. My eyes fixed upon the white gleam of her muslin gown and headdress in the moonlight and a sensation for which I can find no name, a sensation that quickened my pulse and raised a fluttering at my heart, began to steal over me. All in white, Miss Halcombe repeated. The most important sentences in the letter, Mr. Hartwright, are those at the end, which I will read to you immediately. But I can't help dwelling a little upon the coincidence of the white costume of the woman you met, and the white frocks which produced the strange answer from my mother's little scholar. The doctor may have been wrong when he discovered the child's defects of intellect and predicted that she would grow out of them. She may never have grown out of them. And the old grateful fancy about dressing in white, which was a serious feeling to the girl, may be a serious feeling to the woman still. I said a few words in answer. I hardly know what. All my attention was concentrated on the white gleam of Miss Fairley's muslin dress. Listen to the last sentences of the letter, said Miss Halcombe. I think they will surprise you. As she raised the letter to the light of the candle, Miss Fairley turned from the balustrade, looked doubtfully up and down the terrace, advanced a step towards the glass doors, and then stopped, facing us. Meanwhile, Miss Halcombe read me the last sentences to which she had referred. And now, my love, seeing that I am at the end of my paper, now for the real reason, the surprising reason for my fondness for little Anne Catherick, my dear Philip, although she is not half so pretty, she is nevertheless by one of those extraordinary caprices of accidental resemblance which one sometimes sees, the living likeness in her hair, her complexion, the color of her eyes, and the shape of her face, too. I started up from the ottoman before Miss Halcombe could pronounce the next words. A thrill of the same feeling which ran through me when the touch was laid upon my shoulder on the lonely high road chilled me again. There stood Miss Fairley, a white figure, alone in the moonlight, in her attitude, in the turn of her head, in her complexion, in the shape of her face, the living image "'at that distance and under those circumstances "'of the woman in white. "'The doubt which had troubled my mind for hours and hours past "'flashed into conviction in an instant. "'That something wanting was my own recognition "'of the ominous likeness between the fugitive from the asylum "'and my pupil at Limeridge House. "'You see it,' said Miss Halcombe. She dropped the useless letter, and her eyes flashed as they met mine. You see it now, as my mother saw it eleven years since. I see it, more unwillingly than I can say. To associate that forlorn, friendless, lost woman, even by accidental likeness only, with Miss Fairley, seems like casting a shadow on the future of the bright creature who stands looking at us now. Let me loose the impression again as soon as possible. Call her in out of the dreary moonlight. Pray, call her in. Mr. Hartwright, you surprise me. Whatever women may be, I thought that men in the 19th century were above superstition. Pray, call her in. Hush, hush. She is coming of her own accord. Say nothing in her presence. Let this discovery of the likeness be kept a secret between you and me. Come in, Laura, come in, and wake Mrs. Vesey with the piano. Mr. Hartwright is petitioning for some more music, and he wants it this time of the lightest and liveliest kind. End of chapter eight. Okay, so before we even launch into the main topic of our discussion, I just want to say how amazing it is that Wilkie Collins inserts this small exchange at the beginning of this chapter between Miss Halcombe and Mrs. VC. Like, Mrs. V.C. is life goals for me, right? Like, this is what I want to be when I'm an old person. Just that perfect, peaceful, happy, contentedness that she has. And sadly for her, it's because her mind is just so vacant <laughs> that she has literally nothing to worry about because she forgets everything. Like the decision to choose between broiled chicken and cutlets was probably so difficult for her purely because she genuinely forgot what those foods tasted like and was like, "Hmm, maybe I'll try something new today, you know, type of thing. <laughs> and obviously for me, like I'd want to be mentally there, but uh, it was still getting to that point of just like that peaceful contentness at that age is mm, life goals. Like we should all be like Mrs. VC. And I love how they just, like, leave her at the breakfast nook, not concerned that she'll she'll go away to get Miss Fairley. And then they come back, and they're nice, and they pick her up and let her ride in the carriage. And she's probably just like, oh, my gosh, this is beautiful. I've never seen this before, you know, type of thing. And, like, I hope, like, I'm, like, the type of person at my old age that people just bring along for my pleasantry. Like, I'm just going to be rambling and repeating myself. But um, there's also going to be this, like, joy of, like, seeing things for the first time over and over and over again. But not because I have to fake it. It's because, like, I genuinely forgot <laughs> what the view looked like or something like that. I you know people are just entertained by it. And at this point, okay, so, like, I love Miss Halcombe and Walter's dynamic that they have with one e- one another. It's a very platonic non-sexually charged or romantically charged relationship it's purely an investigative like confidant level relationship and like that's so beautiful because you don't have to question their motives on why they're doing something or why they're saying something i mean heck walter went into an entire three paragraphs on why he thought she was ugly so we clearly know that he's got nothing that he sees in her that he's physically attracted to but he's intellectually attracted to her And she's got information that he wants. So by necessity, me as a logical person of thinking this, by necessity, he views that relationship as valid. And I just love that. uh, that I just love their dynamic together. Like they just play off of one another so beautifully. And she's at this point just third wheeling it. And here's where we get to the main topic of the discussion. Because... It kind of caught me off guard, to be honest with you, but like that's purely because like oftentimes I forget that artists are very abstract philosophical thinkers, but on a very general level, not everybody, but on a very general level, I would say that their philosophicalism reaches a unattractive point for me when it delves into the irrationality of it all. Like, as a logically minded person myself, also on a general standpoint, my trains of thoughts will conclude at a very rational point. I won't exceed, you know, my imagination on something. Anyway, like, I love how he describes Laura Fairley in comparison with nature. Nature is something that's always there, it's reality, it's truth, right? And this feeling that he has. Is temporary, it's fleeting, it changes. And just like the contrast he has, he loves her beauty, her grace, the way she talks. Like, everything is so intriguing to him that comes out of her mouth or anything that she does. He's just so mesmerized and hypnotized by her that she could have literally taken out a knife to stab him and he would have been just like, wow, this is like an incredible experience. You know, (laughs) so like... I love the comparison there because he makes a very interesting observation in the fifth paragraph that he uses to describe her beauty. And he says, we go to nature for comfort in trouble and find sympathy and joy only in books. So basically saying nature is there whenever, you know, reality strikes and we're in a rough place. We just, you know... It's there to, to give us comfort as something absolute. But we go to books or fictional reality to, to find true joy and entertainment, something that's a very practical thought today in the world. That's like the basic argument for escapism, right? To escape the harsh realities that we live in, we consult something that is fictional, be it a video game, a TV show, a play, a movie, a book something that isn't true but it excites the imagination it's going to change like it's subject to change those feelings will come and go but the ironic thing is nature exists as true reality something that we can perceive all the time where these feelings are passing and he sums this up excellently with the final two sentences in this fifth paragraph describing Laura Fairley's beauty, where he says, The grandest mountain prospect that the eye can range over is appointed to annihilation in our eyes, but the smallest human interest that the pure heart can feel is appointed to immortality. I mean, isn't that the truth? Like, We don't want it to end. It's never going to end. He describes how, when he's recalling the watercolor painting that he drew of Laura Fairley based off of that first encounter that he had with her, how immortalized it truly is in that artwork, right? He said, all of the conversations that I had with her were way more vivid. Even the most trifling, ridiculous questions that she had, I can recall them, like, as if they happened five minutes ago. More easily than I can remember any of the sketches that I've ever drawn while I was with her and any of the art technical question or art and technical thoughts that she had or things that I observed there. So he's the lines are being blurred be between teacher and romantic interest and personal involvement. So that's That was really incredible, and I just loved the imagery there. Like, bravo on the creative genius, okay? But I'm way more fascinated to see, because I love the chaotic part of everything. I'm more fascinated to see, so that feeling, those feelings, those thoughts, in comparison with the revelation that was made at the end of the chapter, that this quote-unquote Anne Catherick I put her in quotes because we say that the woman in white's name is Anne Catherick, but then again, we're taking the word of a dead woman who wrote this in a letter. So let's take it with a grain of salt, shall we? I don't trust a lot of dead people. Just going to be straight up honest with you. So this Anne Catholic or the woman in white has a striking eerie resemblance to Laura Fairley. And It spooks out Walter, like, you know, in a grave way. And so much so that Miss Halcombe, who's a very, like, happy-go-lucky individual, picks up on is like, whoa, like, I'm supposed to be the emotional, you know, one in the 19th century. You're supposed to be the stable one. And I'm more stable than you are in this moment. And so, like, I can just imagine, like, you know, like, that montage you see when you're watching a movie or show where the person is staring at another individual and then all of a sudden their face glosses over with an image of a person that they don't want to see. And then all of a sudden they're like, you know, like, and then all of a sudden like that fake image goes away and the actual person's face is there. Like, I imagine that's going to happen as Walter gets closer with Laura Fairley because he's going to be looking at her and he's going to be like, Wanting to get really personal and intimate with her. And then all of a sudden, like, he's going to see the woman in white. He's going to see Anne Catherick in her face. And he's going to be like, you know, type of thing. And it's going to be really entertaining to see how he how how he balances those things out. But uh, this dude basically didn't say it out loud, but has a genuine love attraction to Laura Fairley, I would say. You know, it's kind of like in War and Peace in episode 32, where we see Natasha display the symptoms of someone who's lovesick in Pierre. And she didn't actually say she loved him, but just the words that she spoke about like how he made her ha- feel happy and like the joy that she felt when she was around him, I- those are symptoms of love. So... Um yeah, this is this is the plot is developing. We're finally figuring out who the woman in white is. Her name is supposedly Anne Catherick. She is slightly insane in the regards to she's slow to pick up on things. And the one thing that she did pick up was a really strange fashion style wearing white that she was taught, interestingly enough, by Laura Fairley's mother, and yeah, that was the thing that stuck with her. Out of all the lessons that Laura Fairley's mother taught Anne Catherick, just wearing white was the thing she picked up. So, oh, I can't wait till we actually finally meet Anne Catherick again, because that's going to be an interesting experience. But let's wrap this up smartly. Thank you all so much for persevering and enduring through this very long reading of chapter eight. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson, and as they say in show business, that's all he wrote.